0: Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Doing all right. Doing all right. How are you today, Tim? I'm doing great, Lance. It's my 40th birthday, and uh, and we have a guest on, Lance, who wrote about us in her book.
1: I totally forgot because we are doing this a couple days earlier than your 40th birthday, but if you're listening to it, dear listeners, this is Tim's 40th birthday, so happy birthday to Tim.
0: Well, I feel like this is a great way to celebrate, um, honestly, because, uh, again, we have this author on, Elizabeth Breck, and she's a private investigator, and she's also, she wrote this book about a private investigator named Madison Kelly, who investigates and listens to Crawl Space podcast.
1: The book is called Anonymous, and her investigator is based on herself, Madison Kelly. Everything that this investigator does in the book is in some way derived from experiences that Elizabeth had. So that's really fun. And it's also really fun to hear Madison listen to Crawl Space and talk about us as characters. uh, Humbling and fun. And the book is a really great read, and I believe it came out yesterday for public consumption.
0: That's right it did it came out November 10th and um you can get your own copy on Amazon or you can get one at elizabethbreck.com it's from crooked lane books And uh, it's really great, Lance. It is fiction, but as you said, it's based on a lot of her real experiences. And again, she's a private investigator, and you're about to hear what she's done as a private investigator because it's really fascinating. And it's also really fascinating that she listens to our show and values our opinion, and actually it expands her mind as an investigator, which really I love to hear. And uh, honestly, reading this book and being a character in the book uh, that she goes back to from time to time is really uh, a pretty cool experience.
1: Yeah, pretty surreal, pretty humbling. Make sure you follow her on Twitter at TheBlondePI. Uh, She keeps a pretty uh, tidy and uh, informative Twitter account.
0: And the conversation with Elizabeth is so great that we started rolling uh, after we already really started it because uh, it was just so natural. And uh, so if it sounds like we jump in the middle, that's kind of why. All right, everybody, thanks a lot for listening. Oh, and check out our True Crime Riddle game. We're going to play it at the end of this episode. That's crimeriddle.com, and you'll hear all about it if you stick around to the end of this interview. Welcome to the
1: podcast, Elizabeth Breck. You are incredibly busy. Thank you so much for joining us.
0: It's really cool getting to talk to you. Uh, we, we connected via Twitter a few years ago, I'd say. And so we connected because you're a private investigator and you listen to the show. And then one day you message saying, hey, I'm working on a book too. And uh, I wanted to know if I could use your, your guys' real names in the book and it was like yeah uh definitely um that's really cool let us know when you're done i'd love to read it and so here we are
1: and and to to be perfectly clear tim said yes no problem you had to go through many different um hoops we made you jump my lawyers and i made you jump through hoops a lot of red tape a lot of bureaucracy uh, before we finally uh, consented. But it is a privilege to be in this book. Um, and I'll say, even if uh, we weren't in this book, we would be reaching out to you anyway for an interview because it's a fantastic book.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah. And you you, you just slightly about it being um, you're the thread that goes to the whole book. But frankly, you are the premise of the book because uh, briefly, I'm writing about, I'm a female private investigator, I'm writing about a female private investigator. Um, And she uh, comes home one day from a, a jog and there's a note on her door that says, stop investigating me or I'll hunt you down and kill you. And she thinks to herself, I've been taking a few months off, I'm not investigating anybody. Who thinks I'm investigating them? And in order to figure out who left her this threatening note, she has to do what the note is telling her not to do, which is investigate. And um, she can't figure out who who thinks that I am investigating them. And very quickly, she realizes that she had been listening to a podcast, Crawl Space, and Lance and Tim have been talking about, and then this is fictionalized, um, uh, Missing girls. Two girls that are missing from the Gaslamp District of San Diego went missing two years apart, and uh, Madison had been tweeting about it, just sort of putting her. Every time she listens to the podcast, she's like, "Hey, Lance and Tim, what do you think? Could it be this? Could this be, you know, could this be a clue to to their their disappearance?" And uh, the, someone has been following her on Twitter and thinks she's getting too close, so then she just just ends up jumping in to figure out what happened to these girls so you really are the premise of the whole book
0: <laughs> well it's really cool i will say uh reading about yourself uh as as a character in the book and uh we're having interactions and i'm like oh wow i can't wait for her to, to for madison to talk to tim and lance again it's kind <laughs> of or, or really go to twitter again you know which is where we kind of uh exist or when you you turn on your podcast uh as the the, the private investigator but um, but you're right, Lance. Uh, Elizabeth is a private investigator, too, which makes um, this book more authentic in a way um, and and partially the reason we had interacted at all on Twitter in real life before you wrote the book.
2: Yeah, that's right. And um, I mean, I wrote I've read, you know, 10,000 murder mysteries um, and I get frustrated when I read about a private investigator, especially a female private investigator that does things that I wouldn't do. Um, or misses a chance to do something that I would do. <laughs> and so I wrote a book that I'd like to read where every, even though it's a fictionalized plot, everything that Madison does is something I would do. So I put myself in that situation. Okay, this and this happens, what would I do? Uh, so every single thing she does, down to uh, tailing, surveillance, um, pretending to be somebody else in order to get information from someone. These are things I do. I've done them a million times. So um, it's definitely writing from a place of authenticity.
1: Incredible. Really, really flattered that you would consider us to be a part of your uh, process, your writing process, your story, and, um, and even in your world of investigating. Uh, when did you start that? How did you know that you wanted to be a private investigator?
2: Well, I've done it for... Uh... I'm not going to tell you how many years because then you'll know how old I am. No. Um, I'm, I'm older than Madison. (laughs) Madison's 35. So, um, but even Madison has been working at it since she was in her twenties and so have I. So, um, I, I think what happened, by the way, you might hear my dog. I'm just warning you right now. He has peanut butter in his Kong and, but soon he'll run out and then he'll start asking for more. Um, anyway, I, uh, the way it started was I was working for an insurance company and we would hire this, uh, adjusting firm to, um, like if we had to pay a claim, they would go out and figure out, you know, what happened in the accident and whatever. And one time, uh, the, we had an accident and I could tell that these people were lying and the adjuster went out and was like, no, it's fine. And I'm like, it is not fine. I know they're lying. And I went out to the scene and I found the evidence that they were lying and we didn't have to pay that claim. It was fraud. And I was like, I want your job. So I literally went and started working there and that is, that's all she wrote. That's how it started. So I specialize in insurance fraud, um, and yes, in fact, uh, a lot of the two, at least two of the surveillances in the book uh, that I are mentioned in the book, I actually did. That actually happened. Um, like wild stories about being on surveillance. So um, uh, yeah, that's, that's how I became a private investigator. And I wanna jump, because I wanna tell you right away, since we're talking about the you guys and the podcast and tweeting, I wanna tell you where this plot came from, like how I thought of this. Sure. I was watching uh, several years ago. I was watching a special on television about the Golden State Killer before he got caught. So it was several years ago. And I don't remember if it was 48 hours or 2020. And they were putting up all the clues and the fact that it wasn't until, you know, 2001 that they realized it was the same guy uh, committing the crimes in Northern and Southern California. And um, I was shocked because I thought I knew all the serial killers and I hadn't heard of him. And, and, his, the, the, how much of a monster he is, is what was really, you know, really comes across the fact that he toyed with his victims. Um, I mean, just true, a true monster. So when the show ended, it was 11 o'clock at night, and I started tweeting using the hashtags. I don't remember if it was Golden State Killer, GSK, or whatever to get involved in the conversation with other people that were trying to figure out who it was. And I was putting up, what if, did anybody think of this? Did anybody think of that? Um, and then I go to bed, now it's midnight, I'm by myself in my house. And I start thinking about the fact that this guy is really smart and had found his victims like decades later and called them on the phone to torment them. And I thought, what if he figures out who I am? Like, could he figure out like where, where I am? Could he come to my house? And just the way you do, when you get yourself totally psyched out and freaked out, I like leapt out of bed and went and deleted all my tweets because I was like, I don't want this guy to find me. Even though there was really no way he could, it's just, you get yourself freaked out like that. And later, and like a few days later, I thought, what if he had, what if he had found me? That's a plot to a book. So that's where that came from.
1: That is really interesting. That's really fascinating. Uh, great, great uh, way to start off the book. You know, great way to yeah. start off the idea to kick off the idea. Um, you're laying in bed and and you're so paranoid. Like you've become so paranoid because of the story, like the legend that was this guy, and uh, and you went back to your tweets, and that's what uh, sparked that idea for the for the novel, which is really uh, a cool. Um, almost cautionary tale. I I want to say, like, be very careful of what you put online. Um, did you identify yourself as a private investigator when you were engaging in? Con- oh, yeah. So, so because that- my
2: my um my my tweet my Twitter account is that I'm a private investigator. So I mean, it's at the blonde PI is my is my handle on Twitter.
1: Didn't really take a uh, a PI to put those two two uh, details together.
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> were you a writer before that?
2: I, yes, I was either in the process of writing or I had written my first Madison story, but uh, my first Madison novel got me my literary agent uh, from the slush pile. Anybody that's a writer or a wannabe writer will understand that. You have to send out query letters and, you know, they read the first five pages of your book and then they ask for more. Blah, blah. So I got an agent from that, but she sent the book out and nobody wanted it. It took a year and a half. No, no, no. I heard 25 no's. It was brutal. And then I wrote a different Madison novel, same characters, just a different plot. This was the plot and it sold in a week. So yeah. So it just, I have like both ends of the spectrum of the publishing journey.
0: Wow, interesting. Yeah, I think uh the use of technology can can is interesting today because it's something that we're all dealing with as we uh just pointed out like your your storyline is kind of close to reality um for some people.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is and also, you know, still timely since he just got sentenced. And um, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but there's more um sort of tidbits that people who have followed the Golden State Killer will recognize in the book.
0: So tell us what it's like to uh, to get licensed in the state of California.
2: Okay. It's very, very hard to become a private investigator in California. And I can compare and contrast because I also got a PI license in Colorado because I thought I would live there for six months. Colorado is beautiful. I'm just... Uh, California girl, and I'm used to sea level, and my body does not like altitude. So I did not do well in Colorado, but it was so beautiful. Um, Anyway, in California, you have to uh, prove that you have 6,000 hours of apprenticeship under another PI license before they even let you take the exam. So that's, I think, three years at 40 hours a week under another PI license. Then they let you take the exam, and 70% of the people that take the exam fail because I think the main reason for that is that, um, if you're ex law enforcement, you don't have to prove, you don't have to show those 6,000 hours. You can just retire from law enforcement and take the PI exam, but being a PI and being a cop are two totally different things. Like I can't flash a badge at somebody. I can't call on the radio and get somebody to, you know, look up something on the DMV. Like there you there's, it's very different. You have to know where to go to get certain public records, Um, you know, not that cops aren't good at investigating things. It's just that the sort of the material and the process is very different when you're between a PI and law enforcement. So it is really hard. And that whole process can take a year and a half aside from getting the, um, you know, the evidence that you've worked under another PI license. Now in Colorado, they give you four pieces of paper to read that are the rules about being a PI. And then you take an online exam that based on those four pieces of paper. So it's open book because you have the four pieces of paper. And once you start the exam, you have 30 days to finish it. <laughs> so, it's not hard, but you know what? Colorado's the wild, wild west. You know, you just hitch up your horse and put a star out and you can, you know, be a PI.
1: <laughs> That's incredible. And you, um, you apprenticed for, uh, Six thousand hours, you said.
2: Longer uh, than that. Yeah. Like I did more okay. like six years.
1: Six years. And was that with uh like under the same person, under the same PA?
2: It was a firm. I worked for a firm.
1: Ah, I see. Okay. So so that's that's um would you be able to uh work kind of independently with uh just an individual private investigator? Like if I wanted to?
2: Yeah, like someone could come work for me.
1: Huh. I might do that.
0: Now, what if we say we've been following your tweets um, for three years at forty hours per week? Is that do you think that's good enough?
2: That won't cut it because uh, they want to know that you know how to you know they want to know that you know how to go find public records, that you know how to tail people without scaring them to death because really, I have a license to stalk people
0: <laughs> right. if you think about yeah. it
2: I get so to, I sit outside their house, <laughs> I wait for them to leave, I follow them. You know, so they want to make sure you know what you're doing.
1: Wow. I, I think this, this interview alone, though, I think in Florida this counts. Tim and I can be <laughs> private investigators in Florida just just for simply talking to you for 10 minutes.
0: <laughs> well,
1: uh, well, we were in your book, too. So that's going to count for something.
0: Right. Exactly. Yeah. We should get honorary licenses somehow. That's right. Keys to the city, U.S. Marshal, pins, something. For, something. I mean, I mean, the book is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm honored. But uh, but we, we need
1: to be deputized.
0: We we need some deputy
1: action. So part of your journey, you have this um, amazing life. You are a uh, cancer survivor.
2: Yes, and that's actually how I became an author because I. Um, so I decided I had never gotten a bachelor's degree. Uh, I don't, I just, it didn't happen. So I decided, you know, I'm getting older. I can't do surveillance for the rest of my life. It's very physical. You got to jump into the back seat. You got to get a better angle with the camera. You're, you know, high speeds trying to catch up to somebody without them seeing you. And I was like, I can't do this like until I'm 70. It's just, I'm tired. So I should plan. What am I going to do? And I thought, you know what? I'll be a lawyer. I've, I'm it's, I've worked in the legal field for a long time. I have friends that are lawyers. I enjoy the I enjoy the process, the logic and reason aspect of the, of being an attorney. So I will go back to school and I'll get my bachelor's degree and I'll go to law school. So I, I went back to school in San Diego. I um, worked really hard to get straight A's because I wanted to get a full ride to law school. So I was tracking summa cum laude, which is higher than magna to tell you, I have a friend. When I said I graduated summa cum laude, he's like, well, you'll always be magna in my book. I'm like, Suma's higher than Magna. <laughs> but like people don't know that sometimes. Anyway, so everything was going great. I started my prep class for the LSATs, for the um, you know, the entrance exams for law school. And I found out I had breast cancer. And so I but I'm so driven. I was like, you know, I will um I'll take like a couple classes off. I'll I'll miss just, you know, a couple weeks of school and I, I won't work for two weeks, and then I'll go back to everything after surgery. And then I was like That's ridiculous. You're going to have to put law school off for a year. You just are. And meanwhile, I was in these writing classes because I was majoring in writing and um, I would travel as a, as a private investigator, I'd go to St. Louis and Idaho to do surveillance on people. And I would write about my travels, like for my nonfiction classes, I had a travel writing class. So I'd write about the travels of the blonde PI and my fiction class i started writing about madison because you got to write something you know you got to turn in two pages every week to these classes so i'm starting at this point to think gosh you know i'd like to write a book about this girl madison i'd really like that i'll write a book and i'll go to law school and i'll work full time (laughs) and i'll go to school full time it'll be fine and um so i i needed just a little bit of surgery it was caught very early I go back to school, I'm gonna put law school off, and six months later, still in my senior year, the cancer came back. So now I need the big surgery, and um, oh, that sucked. So um, I made them wait, I found out in March, and I was like, I am graduating summa cum laude, I am not stopping, so you have to wait. So I graduated, and three weeks later I had a bilateral mastectomy with reconstruction, and, um, While I was recovering, I thought, you know, maybe I want to write books. Maybe I don't want to go to law school. It's one of those things where life suddenly gets a lot shorter and you start thinking about what you want to do with your life. And I was really enjoying, um, I had already started writing the book. So I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And so I also gave Madison a bilateral mastectomy with reconstruction because there are so many women that have this. And It doesn't get talked about because nobody wants to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it right now. I'm talking to two guys on Zoom. I don't want to talk about this, but it's like, it's, there's so many women that have to have this done. Um, My mother died of breast cancer. She had two sisters and um, the second one died of breast cancer. And the third one just died of breast cancer uh, a month ago. So, um, and I have a gene mutation you know, that not the famous gene mutation, it's, there's several, there's like 25 gene mutations that can increase the, um, chance of breast cancer. And I have it. So, um, you know, it has to, it, I'm living, I'm alive, uh, no more cancer. Um, and so, yeah, it was important to me to give Madison that, and it's not like, as tim can attest since he's read a hundred pages um it's not like the main part of the book it's just an aside it's just part of her like she has blonde hair and she's five foot eleven and she had a bilateral mastectomy
0: so there's some truths to your real life in there um which makes it makes it very compelling and uh the character of madison loses her father in in the story
2: yeah like it doesn't happen in the story but it's part of her history that her father has died. Yeah, both of my parents have died.
0: Right, and, and Madison reflects on it during the book. Is that based on some real truths about your father?
2: Yes, and in fact, the, the wisdom that Madison imparts uh, that she says, you know, my father always used to say, like one of the things, and it, these are things my father used to say. He was very wise. He used to say, everything in life is a trade-off. And Madison says that in the book. And it's one of the best pieces of advice I've ever gotten from anywhere. It applies to everything. So, you know, I I didn't get to go to law school, but I got to write a book. You know, everything in life is a trade-off.
1: That's interesting. Did your father ever tell you where he got that um that that mantra from that?
2: I should probably look it up because he's probably quoting somebody.
1: No, no. I feel like there's something happened in his life. You know, I feel like you know, I, I I just feel that way. I, I've obviously I've never. Uh, this is the first time we're having a face to face or a zoom to zoom conversation. I've obviously never met your father, but I feel like, I feel like that's something that happened, and and someone told him that because something happened in his life, and he was like, "That's a very good piece of wisdom."
2: Yeah, so, and, you know. and he was incredibly wise. I mean, he was oh, he was so wise. I mean, I have really been missing him lately with the pandemic and everything because he would have had he would have had such wisdom to impart you know so um yeah and the book you know is a like people people who are sort of into books and into literature will understand what I'm about to say there's different genres of books so this is a a mystery thriller that's the genre there's another genre of books which is literary which is sort of like highfalutin (laughs) you know lots of pretty words, lots of pretty sentences. And I could write literary, like I have the vocabulary for it. I enjoy literary books. Um, But I wanted to write something that was like, you sit down and you just, you just consume the book. Like you could be on the beach or on an airplane and you might finish it because you don't want to put it down. Um, And if you write too many highfalutin sentences, then you stop you know, it's like you, you stop to ponder the beauty of that sentence and it's not, it's just a different, it's just a different thing. So what I did is I sprinkled, (laughs) I'm laughing because Tim put my book up behind him on the zoom screen. Um, anyway, my, uh, this book has some beautiful sentences sprinkled throughout, but it's a, it's a genre book of a a commercial mystery thriller that you just want to like. You just want you can't put it down. So I mentioned that because some of those things like everything in life is a trade-off or a little bit of the melancholy about losing my father um there's there's some beautiful sadness in the book. Um you know where it's not like you it's not a book that you want to slit your wrists over, you know. Like I, I it's not <laughs> no. like a depressing book, but there's some beautiful sadness to it. And in fact, I will say I had a sticky note on my computer while I was typing and the sticky note said hope. Yeah. I wanna make sure that when someone's finished reading my book, they have hope. Like, they'll, they'll, they don't even know why. They'll just close it and they'll think, you know, maybe I will do that project. Maybe I will call that person I haven't talked to in a long time. I mean, like, maybe things will be okay. Like, I worked really hard to make sure there was hope in the book.
0: Well, good. Yeah, I think beautiful sadness is a, is a good way to put uh, some of those parts, but they're also inspirational. So yeah, definitely not depressing. Uh, like you said, I think you achieved your uh, your goal there.
2: Oh, good. Thanks. Yeah,
1: I was uh, reading a review of one of the many uh, excellent reviews that this book got. Uh, this one was on... Um, oh, there's one right behind Tim. Uh, this one was from a reader on, um, on Goodreads, and they, they said they really liked the character of Madison, and they... I don't know, they phrased it like, I hear the author is going to be doing more with this character. So one question, this is the first in the series, so you will be doing more, correct? And then the other question... um I guess my, my first question is uh, what maybe uh, do you have any um, advanced uh, insight into some of the new adventures that Madison will get into and also back to your father, I'd like to how your father um, or Madison's father almost appeared as a character when she needed to get through something she would reflect back to him and and that would help her through something. It wasn't like you said it, it's not something you'd slit your wrists over you're not going to read it because she's there and sad and dwelling. She she reflects, and what would my dad do is sort of what uh, the, the theme of that is. Is he going to be there in various incarnations?
2: Yes. Yeah, so that's a, a two-part question. By the way, we should say the name of the book is Anonymous. I don't think we've said that. So- if anybody wants to pause and go buy the book right now, um, no, uh, and it can be bought anywhere, uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Walmart, Target, everywhere. Okay, so yes, I have already written the second book in the series. I sent it to my publisher a month ago.
1: Whoa, 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 whoa. You, you sent it to your publisher before you sent it to us? Yeah, we're supposed to get everything.
2: You're not mentioned in this one.
1: Oh, well, as, 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 long as, as long as you didn't mention Mike Morford or John Lorden, we're cool.
2: Okay. No. Good.
0: I was just going to propose a storyline where Madison uh, dates Lance.
2: Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, you know, have you gotten to the part about her boyfriend that has two black belts?
0: Uh, no. I have three. You do? And bees. He's got thousands of bees that he could sick on people.
2: That's true. That's very true. Yeah, Madison's love interest. I say boyfriend, but she's very independent and she doesn't need a boyfriend. So it's her love interest. He's a champion surfer and he has two black belts. There's a really good scene where he demonstrates that. But to answer Lance's question, um, a tidbit about the new book um, is I don't want to say anything yet because I haven't worked out like the log line that's like the perfect thing. So I'll just say, yes, she's back. Yes, her father is always there and um, because he's always in my life and, you know, infuses my life with advice. You know, I'm always thinking, what would he do? What would he say?
1: I would never want to compete with, uh, with her boyfriend her, or her love interest, Dave,
0: just to be clear. Uh, well, that, that, that storyline would really uh, amuse me <laughs> anyway.
1: <laughs> maybe,
0: maybe we should do a
1: fan fiction based on it. <laughs> There's another review where somebody says that they want um Kira Sedgwick to play Madison. They could see Kira Sedgwick playing Madison.
2: Yeah. I love that. I love Kira Sedgwick. Yeah. You know, I um I haven't read I read the first couple reviews and um decided to be better if I just don't read reviews. Here I have really great reviews. Um the ones that I read are the ones from other authors and from like Publishers Weekly and Kirkus Reviews where I got great reviews. So those are up in my, uh, the advertisement for the book. So I see those, but I don't read the reader reviews cause, uh, it's just, it can be, if someone says something critical, it can affect you when you're writing, you know, it just sits there like, is that true? You know? And I mean, I went, I have a bachelor's degree in writing and, uh, each week in class, um, in each class you have six other college students critiquing your work. So it's not like I'm not, I can't listen to critiques, but it's sometimes people can be mean. <laughs> so I just, I don't read really, the reviews. Really, so I'm, that's all to say, I'm very happy to hear that someone thinks Kira Ke- Ke- Sedgwick should be in the part. I mean, that would be great. I love her. You know who else I was thinking of? Margot Robbie.
1: Yeah, that fits.
2: I also thought, um, <laughs> Taylor Swift in an interesting sort of, just cause she's really tall too.
1: Oh, and that could be her dramatic turn. That could be in. Yeah.
2: Her next sort of, yeah. Her next thing in her career.
1: Well, because we're wildly famous, we typically hobnob with people, uh, a list celebrities, if you will. So we could probably connect you with any one of the three. Oh,
2: good. If you, the next time you talk to Taylor, could you, because she, I know she loves murder mysteries. So could you ask her if she'd like to read this?
0: Sure. Yeah. Let me let me text her. <laughs> He's not texting her. Um, we could ask Hold Hold to play Dave, maybe. <laughs> that's, that's true.
2: Well, see, I, I was thinking Taylor Swift could play Madison and her real life boyfriend Joe Alwyn Dave.
0: Uh, now you don't want to mix that though. You know, I feel like that could age poorly. Like, look at uh, what uh Geely or uh i don't know mr and mrs smith i don't know sometimes those oh, couples it's
1: a kiss a death really
2: you're right yeah. you're absolutely like, right
1: like when brad pitt appeared on friends that one time after that it
0: was downhill well arguably one of the best episodes though arguably one of the best episodes
2: you yes. guys are friends fans
0: uh... no no and actually lance auditioned uh to be chandler bing <laughs>
1: Back to your book, Anonymous, which you can buy on Amazon, your website. I'm, I'm curiously why there are tons of true crime podcasts out there. Why did you pick Crawl Space? I mean.
2: No one knows. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, this is the reason why. Okay. I can't remember how I was uh, introduced to Missing marmory podcasts. I think it was probably because I saw the Oxygen show. And then I went on Twitter to find people that were talking about it. And I found you guys. And then I saw you at a podcast and I was very late to the game on podcasts. I was like, what is a podcast? <laughs> just because I don't know. I just, I, I don't know. I, I I just was late to the game. So I think literally Mara Marie was Missing Mara Marie was the first podcast I ever listened to. And so from that, then I started listening to Crawlspace. Space. And um, in fact, I want to tell you, I did this is like a year or two ago I did surveillance uh, a week of surveillance I had to do at night from 11 p.m. to like 5 a.m. in this really rural part of Los Angeles like up in Altadena Pasadena area and um it was so scary I was parked all night long in this residential district it was very quiet it was so quiet that a coyote came down the street and um I was catching up on Missing Maura Murray. So now when I hear the theme music, I get like chills because it was so, I got so freaked out sitting there by myself in the middle of nowhere, listening to scary podcasts. So when it came time, I knew I needed to put a podcast in the book. I just was like, why not? I'm going to put in the guys that I listen to.
1: That's great. Well, thank you so much. And I'm, I'm curious. You, you had uh, sent us some details and you mentioned that you were uh on a, on a surveillance uh operate, operation, you were on a surveillance duty. Yeah, you were on surveillance duty. What was it about that area that was so creepy? Because uh, it was residential, or is just like everything was just playing into that factor.
2: A yes, everything was playing into that factor. It was very very quiet, and it was slightly run down. So like there were a couple of houses that were sketchy you know, you think like, I wonder what goes on in that house. Um, I'm trying to think the difference. Like basically if you're sitting in your car alone at night and you're a girl and you're sitting there for eight hours, it can be scary no matter where you are. You could be sitting in Beverly Hills and it could be scary. Um, but it so, but it was rural. So the houses are set back, um, from the street and, uh, it was, it was October. I think it was October or yeah, September, October. So like the wind is blowing (laughs) and it was just spooky. It was just spooky. And then you're listening to, you know, a crime, a true crime podcast. So yeah, I was freaking myself out, but not as scary. Do you want me to tell you about the time the guy tried to steal my car while I was in it? Yes. Okay. So, uh, this was many years ago. Um, and I had just really started being a private investigator. I was in East LA in, again, a really rural part. It was 5.36 a.m., so it had just gotten light. The houses were set so far back from the sidewalk that if I had screamed, nobody would have heard me. Like It was really, really rural, and it was a very bad area very bad. And um I am in the back seat which I'm not always but this time I was um this is when I first started I had a little car and I was in the back seat and I had a um a sheer black curtain velcroed between the front seat and the back seat and it creates an optical illusion where if you put your hands up and with your head with your hands and your head up to the window, you'd see me. But if you're walking by, you do not see me. So I'm sitting in the back seat and my windows are down about two inches because it was summer. So it was hot. And I see this guy, he was like six, two, and he was walking. There's no one else around. And he's walking on the sidewalk towards my car. And he looked so scary I don't know if anybody remembers, nobody will, but there was a serial killer in LA called the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. This is what this guy looked like. So I'm watching him like, what is this guy up to? And as he gets closer to my car, and by the way, this is in the book, Madison tells this story in the book. As he gets closer to my car, he veers off the sidewalk towards my car and he goes over to the driver's side and he, I'm like, oh my God, I have no weapon. I am very young (laughs) and a girl. And I'm, and he, he, I'm like, what is this guy doing? And then suddenly he puts his hands on the window frame, um, on the window that was down two inches and starts shoving the window down into the door. And clearly he's going to reach his hand in and unlock the door. And I, I don't know what compelled me to do this. It was just truly pure survival. I lowered my voice as deep as I could get it. And I go get the fuck away from the car, motherfucker. And he, this is what scared me almost more than anything. He just put his hands down, just slowly backed away from the car, casually walked away. Like he was a a career criminal. He knew, don't run, don't, you know, that draws attention to yourself, just slowly back away. And then he walked away. But oh my God, what if he had gotten in and stolen my car while I'm in the backseat? What
1: the heck? Uh, where did he... He continued to walk away. And did you leave?
2: Yes. Yes. I jumped in the front seat and drove away. What the heck?
1: That's incredible. I, I don't know what I would have done. I, I really, I, that's, you know, round of applause for, uh, lowering your voice. And
2: yeah, I, 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 it was pure survival. I don't know what, I don't know what came over me. I, it's not like I thought of it ahead of time. Oh, I know what I'll do. <laughs> it just, yeah. I just tried to sound like a guy.
0: Interesting, is yeah. It's one of those things that uh, you learn. You learn a lot about yourself in that moment, um, and I guess about survival instincts. Uh, probably being you lowering your voice. But I guess if you think about it, if this guy's trying to steal a car, he obviously isn't thinking someone's in the car to hear you. <laughs> someone yell at you from inside the car must have startled the hell out of him.
2: Yeah, and I sounded violent, so he doesn't know if I have a weapon.
0: Right, and he can't really see it.
2: He probably thought I was a cop. Because right. who else is going to be in you know in the backseat of a car in the middle of nowhere? He probably thought he stumbled into a um you know a, a some sort of s- s- surveillance that were there were cops.
0: What did you say again to him?
2: I s- "You want me to swear again?" Yeah. I said, "Get the fuck away from the car, motherfucker!"
0: <laughs> Jeez, that's pretty good. I'm trying to put myself in those shoes, and I feel like I would yell something similar, like. Yeah, just yeah, I would like sound like a lunatic in that moment. That's oh wow.
2: I yeah, I just tried to sound strong and male.
0: Yeah.
1: Trying to freak them out, you know. That's uh, that's good. And honestly, like the description of uh of Richard Ramirez, six foot two versus like Richard Ramirez and as he's getting closer, I can't even imagine what you were thinking. Like, is this actually happening? It had to have been so surreal.
2: It was It was so surreal. And I mean, the only thing I can think of is that I grew up in LA and um, like I would, I was hanging out with my friends on Hollywood Boulevard when I was 14 and just, you get, you, I don't know if you sort of get street wise, like you, you, you know, when something's dangerous, when something's not dangerous. I, I mean, I don't know, but I literally, I can't, I can't describe my I can't ascribe it to anything. I don't know why I did that. It just pure survival instinct.
1: Do you have any plans to um, take one of the cases that you worked on and and put that into one of uh, Madison's, like make that one of Madison's cases, like the central plot line of, an, of a new book?
2: I don't know that any of mine are interesting enough. Like little tidbits of them are interesting, like that yeah. is interesting. But the actual case I was working on was not that fascinating. I don't think, I mean, I did insurance fraud, so... Um, so in a way they are in the book because, um, you know, when I tell someone or Madison talks about something that really happened to me, um, like the time, um, that this is also mentioned in the book, Madison talks about it. Um, I, uh, I was working for another firm and, uh, they were hired by a rental car agency that was losing a bunch of cars in the tourist areas of San Diego that were being stolen And so they were like, why is this happening? So they hired the firm I was working for. And we had all these ideas of how we were going to do it. But basically these tourists were, uh, you know, driving their car to some touristy spot. And then they'd come back and the car was gone, stolen. So what we ended up doing after like two weeks of working on this, uh, and the police knew that we were out there and everything, was we would just drive around and look for one of these rental cars because it was a particular kind of car, like a Chevrolet. And they have a sticker on it. So we know it's that particular rental agency. And then we would just wash the car. We would just do surveillance on that car and wait for the tourist family to come back. And one night towards the end of the two week period that we were going to do it, I was, I was so sick of this job. I had been on it for like two weeks, 10 hours a day. And I had my, I had found a car. uh, I'd watched the tourist family get out of it. And I uh, was parked next to it. On this in this parking lot, not right next to it, but like one row over. And I had my foot up on the dashboard and I was reading a People Magazine and I had like a quarter of a tank of gas, like so unprofessional. I was just tired of this job. And these two guys came and parked their SUV right next to the car that I was watching. And I was like, holy shit, this is going down. And they got out, they got into the car within 60 seconds and they started the car within a minute and a half. And once they got in the car, I called nine one one and they knew that I was working like what I was doing there. So I was able to say, Hey, it's me. There's a car being stolen. And then they, they pulled out. So it was the Chevrolet that was the stolen car. And then his partner was driving their SUV and they pulled out of this parking lot. And I started following them. And we're only in San Diego. We're only like 20 minutes from the border of Mexico. So they got on the five freeway South. And I was like, Oh my God, they're going to Mexico. So I'm talking to this dispatcher and I'm like, I really hope you guys are hurrying because they're very close and I'm following, they're driving sedately because they don't want to attract attention. So, and I'm, I keep telling the dispatcher where I am every, um, every exit that I see, you know, so that they know where I am. And I thought that they were doing nothing because I was like, are you guys coming? (laughs) Because this is getting scary. And then, uh, at each entrance, three cop cars would come on. Boom, 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 boom. And pretty soon they stopped all the traffic behind me. And it was just me following this car who must've been freaking out by then because they saw all the cop cars. And then a helicopter came over and shined their spotlight down on the car and said, and said, you need to stop. And they stopped the car and all the cops behind me stopped and I stopped and the dispatcher was like, tell me what car you're in again. I was like, I because I didn't want to get pulled out of my car. So it was the criminals and then me and then the cops who got out of their car, shotguns out, felony stop on the busiest freeway in San Diego, the helicopter circling, get out of your car. So they got out of their car, face down on the pavement, and um, they got arrested. And uh, it turned out it was a huge car theft ring s- centralized in Mexico. And so I got a lot of high fives, so I gave that to Madison
1: you, you did, and it's actually described uh it's it's a very accurate depiction of of what actually happened uh, when you read it, it, and then you hear you tell the story it's pretty amazing like that actually happened guns drawn uh you know uh, basically like kind of a slow chase to the border uh it's It's fascinating wow
2: it was exciting, it was really exciting, and I was able to get the um 911 tape, which I have somewhere, of me talking to the dispatcher. I was very calm.
1: Good. You didn't tell the dispatcher to uh, to hurry the fuck up, motherfucker.
2: What <laughs> happened was I was on a radio also with my boss, and I was trying to get my boss to call the cop who was assigned to our case because I felt like the dispatcher wasn't doing enough. I I didn't realize at the time she's like putting me on mute and telling people to do stuff. Like uh, to me, she's just talking to me. So my boss who's doing nothing, (laughs) I'm on the freeway following a stolen car and talking to nine one one and talking to him on the radio. He's doing nothing. He's flustered (laughs) and can't get this cop on the phone that, that we were working with. And I screamed at him in the radio. I said, fucking get Catherine on the phone or whatever her name was. And the dispatcher goes, calm down, honey. And I'm like, Oh, I'm calm. (laughs) Just mad at him.
0: That's great. And, uh, and you mentioned that you've uh, listened to the missing Maura Murray podcast. So, uh, let's, let's dish what, uh, what are your thoughts on the Maura Murray case?
2: Well, I think everybody that has come before me has done so much more work than I have on it and research and everything. And I, I don't think I have anything intelligent to offer. That's my premise. That's my preface. I I don't have anything intelligent to offer. I did want to ask has anybody talked about the um the airbags in the car going off? Like did the, did the driver and the passenger side go off or just the driver side? Both. Really?
1: It's interesting. We were we were just having a conversation with a gentleman uh right before this and we were talking pretty uh, detailed about the airbags and um sort of how the chain of events would have gone down in real time for that accident to have uh, ended up the way it ended up?
2: I am not an expert in airbags, cars, and especially Saturn cars. It was a Saturn, right? Yeah,
0: 1996.
2: If that Saturn car has an airbag that deploys if there's no one in the passenger seat.
0: Yeah. I remember looking into this a couple of years ago and and someone called a deal, a Saturn dealership and, uh, and said that it wasn't in that year of Saturn's. Um, one other thing I think we found in the research was that it wasn't until I want to say 2000 that it was like actually a mandate that, Um, the sensor for weight is put on the, under the passenger seat too. So that'll be in all cars, uh, built on, I think starting 2000 and after, but Moras was a 96.
2: So it could have gone off without someone being in the passenger seat. Oh
0: yeah. That's what we figured out. Yeah, it probably
1: did because I think that mandate was, um, at the same time or right around the same time as the seatbelt mandate. So you... If if you even if you were sitting there and you took the seatbelt off, uh, some cars would still have the seatbelt uh, alert um, chime going off. Uh, but yeah, it was that weight mandate, and I think that was at the same time as the airbags.
2: Okay, yeah. So that was my only thing. I mean, my I, I feel like the the most important datum is that the dogs lost the scent at the end of the street, and she probably got in a car because um, she was trying to get away from. I mean. Speaking as a, used to be a young girl, um, I was riding a motorcycle one time and um, I was coming from a party and I had not had anything to drink. I don't know what, I I mean, lots of times I had plenty to drink, but this particular time I hadn't. And I was, I was riding home and I saw a cop uh, coming down a side street and I don't know why I thought, have I been speeding? Have I, and I tried to get away. Like I tried to go faster and I fell. I fell so but I have that moment of I don't want to get caught by the police for doing something I shouldn't be doing or whatever it was and I just feel like in that moment she would have gotten in a car to just get away from the scene and figure it out and I'll come back you know when I have figured it out and she got in the wrong car so it's so sad um yeah and the guy that was on that was talking about Butch you had that whole episode you know I think he made a good case that she might've gotten on the school bus. There may be some details that I didn't catch that made it impossible that she got on the school bus, but whether she got on because he said, yeah, get on, I'll drive you down the street. And he didn't want to say anything because it makes him look really suspicious or he did do something to her. I could see that that's a possibility, but all of the other stuff he did with like, it was planned ahead of time with her dad and that I just didn't, he didn't give any evidence to, to make that make sense.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think the more specific anyone's theory is, the more you can kind of pick it apart. Um, and he was extremely specific. Um, and, and there's a lot of point, And you know, I'm not laughing at him by any means, but there's a lot of points when you when you choose a full theory, um, a lot of fulcrum points where decision points where you really need to go one way or another. And if you, uh, and really you you can just go, you can just be wrong about one way that you think uh, you're you know is likely.
2: Yeah.
1: What do you think it is about um, a mystery like that coming from someone who does investigations uh, professionally? What is it about a mystery like uh, like Ryan with his Butch Atwood theory? Uh, He really I mean, he was really open minded. He is really open minded. He's great to have a conversation with. Uh, But there's a lot of people like him that take it the step further and they just can't say it was random, you know, if she got into a car, like she has to be there. She has to be in a certain area. What is it about the mystery? I guess even more mystery and, and others. Why, why do you think people just need that answer?
2: I think a lot of people like me hate a mystery. They hate it. Like they've got to figure it out. They can't stand not knowing. Um, I hate it so much that I became a private investigator so that I could figure mysteries out. Um And some people, they just, they can't stop. And I think that if you're not experienced at investigations, it's easy to get carried away and to not stop yourself and go, well, now I'm speculating. Like now I don't have any evidence of what I'm saying. (laughs) I'm just completely speculating. You know, if you're, you know, less experienced in investigations, I think you could just, you get carried away and you keep going. Well, it has to be this way, you know, and you think you figured it out and you want it to be true because you hate the mystery.
1: And then there's also this really interesting aspect to it nowadays with social media. You, you, you will have your theory, but you also have to let everyone know your theory. And, and, and it's almost like you're breaking news that you created, like you're scooping yourself and saying this happened and everyone I just figured, you know, it, it's me. I did it. I, it's so it's so strange sometimes
2: i was just gonna say i think people want to be right too there's an urge in everyone me, me included to be right i want to be the one that figured it out i want to be right
1: do you see any use in um utilizing or manipulating or um taking advantage of social media in order to get answers in an investigation like as an investigator would you use social media to pull answers to maybe act in a certain way
2: um, social media, as far as um, getting other people's opinions or as far as um looking at what people are doing on social media and figuring out a mystery that way,
1: well, I guess um my 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 uh, initial question was uh, using social media to figure something out and looking how looking at how people are behaving. That comes from the man Stephen Pankey, who. Uh, committed a murder and was following one of our peers online and uh was actually contributing to this person's patreon and and the arrest happened and and this uh this this person had covered the case that this guy was guilty of and and the arrest happened and he he put out there as like a a a social warning like hey check check your followers uh because this guy was following me
2: that's the premise of my book right there
1: yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That that Madison is is talking about these murders and I mean, the disappearances and, you know, what if what if, um, you know, uh, this happened or what could it be this or whatever? And the guy who's involved is following her on Twitter and decides she's gotten too close and, you know, something needs to be done with her.
1: Okay. yeah. So I guess my yeah, my really long winded question was as an investigator, is that something that you actively look for?
2: I mean, I do insurance fraud, so I'm not looking for murderers and and disappearances, but um, I absolutely use social media. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Because I'm, uh, you know, I have a subject of an investigation and I want to know what their activities are. So I'm absolutely looking at social media. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, you can get, I mean, you have to, I mean, social media is so important.
0: Well, the book is called Anonymous. We are speaking with Elizabeth Breck, and you can go check out the book. Get a copy for yourself. Amazon.com, ElizabethBreck.com. Get yourself a copy. We're in the book. It's amazing.
2: November 19th at 4 p.m. You can go to my website. It'll be on there, but I'm doing a live book launch uh, Q&A with my local bookstore, Warwick's. Um, and it'll be on their Facebook page. So if you go to my uh, website, ElizabethBreck.com, then you could ask me questions. Uh, It'll be live, so you can join in on the conversation. So yeah, I think since I messed up the date, just go to elizabethbrecht.com and look for the event there.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It it was a really fun conversation. It's always fun to get uh, insight. You you run investigations, you're an author, you listen to the show. It's it's fun to get that perspective. And um, yeah, fun conversation. Thanks.
2: Thank you. (音楽) Thank you.